welcome to AO North America Journal Club on Tails Fractures. We have uh, my co-chair, Christopher Domes, and co-moderator for the evening. I'd like to welcome our guest faculty, Dr. Valier, Valier and Dr. Githens. Uh, Dr. Lindvall and Dr. Miller are unable to join us tonight, but their videos will be presented. And sincere thank to, thanks to all those joining us and for those sharing their videos with their interviews. Without further ado, we're going to start with the first video with Dr. Anna Miller, and I'm going to turn it over to the video now. Thank you so much. Hi, we're here with Dr. Anna Miller uh, at Washington University in St. Louis, and she's here to discuss with us her article uh, out of Hospitals for Special Surgery discussing the vascular of the talus. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, I just wanted to start out by asking, what was the prompting for you and your colleagues to perform this study, and what were you expecting to, what was your working hypothesis with this? So um, this was a study I worked on when I was a resident, and this was led by one of my mentors in residency, probably my main mentor, Dean Lorich, who many of you know and um, have been influenced by. Um, so basically, Dr. Lorich had started doing some vascularity studies with the femoral head a couple of years before this, and I was involved in that also. Um, and what he found was the MRI techniques they were using at the time at Hospital for Special Surgery were really advanced and, um, you know, kind of on the cutting edge of MRI use in the country. So we thought maybe if we look at these um, injuries that have a really high rate of avascular necrosis, like femoral neck fractures, talus fractures, we may find other um, vascularity maybe to help us learn what we need to protect more, but also our hypothesis was actually that we would see more than what we've traditionally learned from the textbooks. And the reason for that is um, most of the older studies are like the latex injections, where you can kind of see the um, arterial supply to the bone and dissect it out, but it's not very, very high resolution because you have to get the latex into those vessels. So what we learned on the femoral neck study or the femoral head study is that um, we were seeing a lot more kind of unnamed vessels, really tiny vessels that probably give a lot more vascular supply than we originally gave credit in that area. So our hypothesis really was that we would probably find more than what's traditionally been described and then maybe give us some answers on why not every talus that gets a neck fracture goes on to avascular necrosis. Awesome. Um, and in with the results of what you found, how has that changed what your mentors did and what you've done in your practice with respect to Taylor's fracture care? I don't think it has made a huge difference um, in you know everyday practice. I think the biggest thing is to help us just understand that there is more than just the traditional kind of two areas of blood supply and that a lot of the blood supply comes from the posterior. So one thing that I definitely try not to do is really dissect all the way around the talus. And we rarely have to do that. Sometimes when you're doing the medial and lateral approach, you may see that it goes across because of the trauma. But um, the only time I've really had that concern is when we've had some irreducible talus. And then you're really trying to get around and figure out what is keeping it from being reduced. And I try to be very wary of, you know, completely cutting off all these um, great collaterals that you can see in the figure from the paper. The other thing that I learned um, just doing this actual study, we did the, you know, injections, we did the MRIs, and then afterwards we dissected out every single talus and actually pulled them out of the cadavers. And, um, I found it very interesting that you could ever, ever have an extruded talus because it is impossible to get those things out. It would take forever to cut every little, you know, connection that's holding the talus in place. And it was shockingly hard to get them out. So whenever I see a dislocated talus or an extruded one, I'm always, I always think back about how hard that was to get out. So it is interesting. So I would just say back to your question, not a significant change, but just to be continuously very careful with the dissection, but also to know if you get in there and it has already been completely destroyed, you know, underneath the talus, like where we normally think of the blood supply, 
or in the sinus tarsi, we're not, you know, giving up on that patient. They can still have a significant blood supply from the posterior in particular. Um, I guess the scenario that comes to mind is if you have a patient with a tailor neck and or body that you would fix from an anterior dorsal dual approaches a medial lateral, but someone who also had a significant posterior medial or posterior fracture, would that give you pause on doing a third approach, a, a posterior medial approach and saying whether you would try and perform reduction of fixation through some anterior base means or percutaneously only? Like how does, how do those injuries, I know they're more rare than not, but how would you approach those in the setting of this? Yeah, I definitely think that's a great question. Again, rare injuries, but um, for me, I definitely think if you can, at least try to preserve one area of the blood supply. So, which probably in that case, it would be whichever one is more displaced, you would have, you know, some idea that that's probably the more disrupted blood supply. So maybe if you can, if the next more displaced, you're doing your regular two standard approaches, and then you maybe try to do percutaneous clamps or something else for a posterior part. Um, but yeah, I would definitely try not to dissect all the way around if possible. Okay. Is there anything with having been part, having done this study, is there anything that you in retrospect or your colleagues would have done differently or that you've seen done in subsequent cadaveric studies looking at vascularity? I yeah, I think the the one thing I would really like to do, not that we would do it differently, but kind of part two or maybe even the more interesting part of the study would be to do it in patients who actually have a fracture. Um, you know, either an actual patient with a fracture would be pretty challenging to get that, you know, protocol done before you're trying to get them fixed. But even, um, you know, doing a cadaver study but where you do an osteotomy of the talus and then inject it and see where the contrast or fluid goes and see you know how that disrupts like doing a pre and post osteotomy kind of study i think would be really interesting to kind of prove that that blood supply and maybe even see how the circulation or the collaterals change that blood supply after the osteotomy occurs I also think it could be interesting to do a similar study after you fix the fracture. So in a live patient, you know, if you did a study where you did these MRIs after the fracture was fixed to see what the circulation is, you know, does that predict whether it's going to get AVN or not? You know, studies like that, I think would be interesting. I think there are a lot more future studies that can be done, but I don't think there's a lot more to this. Um, there is a paper that we published, there's one of the figures is the same from Foot and Ankle International in 2010. And we actually wanted to publish this paper first, but it just, with the editorial manager and everything, the other one just happened to get published first. So the figures got a little confusing during that time. But the other one is really looking more at the art arterial anatomy itself. Um, and I think the combination of those really kind of covered everything we wanted to with these studies. For you, when you have these um, come in, tailor neck, displaced fractures with associated dislocations or other extensions, what are your like first things that come to your mind when you're teaching the residents and fellows in your in your institution? Well, I think the first thing is obviously to get the patient reduced. Um, for us, you know, it's always kind of controversial about do they need an X fix or is how urgently do you need to get the fracture fixed? Um, I think in general these days, we all agree that the best fracture fixation is probably gonna give you the best outcomes as opposed to the fastest fracture fixation. So we're not generally doing these, you know, in the middle of the night, unless it's an open something or something that's irreducible. Um, but that's kind of the thing we really try to teach the residents is that we're trying to get the best fixation. And we definitely hearken back to Dr. Vollier's landmark papers, uh, often to talk about, you know, the AVN rates after these kinds of injuries and just letting the patient know how severe the injury is and that really the original displacement is probably the biggest predictor. Awesome. Well, I sincerely thank you for your time and discussing your article and we look forward to seeing you at the live event. Sounds great. Thank you. Have a good afternoon.
Me too. So I'm here for AO North America Journal Club discussing talus fractures with Dr. Eric Linval in his JBJS 2003 paper regarding the open reduction fixation of Taylor body and neck fractures. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Um, I'd like to start out by asking, what was the prompt for you and your colleagues in Tampa for performing this study? So really, I think it really had to do with uh, in the treatment of these fractures, it was kind of unclear in the literature as to what the true incidence of osteonecrosis versus post-traumatic osteoarthritis were because so many of the studies had limited follow-up or they had non-displaced fractures or they had associated articular fractures. So our goal was to try to clean that up and kind of look at the isolated displaced fractures of the neck and body and then kind of report on the results of that. And in, what, in, in your findings in the paper, what are the major takeaways that you, to this day, almost, uh, you know, almost 20 years later, find to be the key or most important takeaways from your manuscript? So I, I think it has to do with probably the, the long-term outcomes that we were able to find, because the study had a minimum of four-year follow-up. So, so it gave us come, come kind of a benchmark as to what's expected long-term. And we found that in the displaced fractures, at least, they really end up with all 100% end up with osteoarthritis, some form of it, and then also with some form of discomfort in that ankle. So, so knowing those two things that helped with our future counseling and such like that, the treatment piece, I think a uh, piece we did find, um, we were able to maybe not have to rush out of bed in the middle of the night to fix these with the intent that it wouldn't end up with AVN in the future. Although in this time frame, we were trying to do that because that was kind of the reported um, procedure or technique to avoid the AVN. So after the results of this, we kind of were able to look at it and maybe say, hey, you know what, some of these maybe can get reduced and spit in a splint overnight and then get done the next day. So that's something that for you from the development of this to how you practice today has changed in terms Correct. of the Yes. Um, is, there, is there certain key phrases or things you try very hard to convey to your patients at the time of injury and as well in follow-up that what type of things do you say to them with respect to outcomes. Yeah, I think, I think that's important because their expectations once known at the beginning help the treatment course and, and their outcome just because of the way they frame it and look at it. So part of that discussion, it really is about the AVN, about the osteonecrosis possibilities. And then uh, the fact that the arthritis, arthritis does form long-term in some form, we try to explain to them that that will occur, whether it's symptomatic or a real problem for you, we don't know. But if you were a runner, uh, maybe you want to rethink that and start taking up cycling or those kind of things, but not with the intent to decrease their activity level, but maybe modify it so they're not hampered uh, more by the injury. Within, within the body of the manuscript describing the uh, methods, it's discussed that uh, there was CT scans obtained in addition and possibly MRI. Can you talk about the use of advanced imaging post-operatively that you used in the manuscript and if you use it now? So uh, personally, I, I don't do a lot of post-operative CAT scanning. I think the radiographs are kind of indicative of their symptoms, meaning if we see some arthritic change or if we see some type of AVN collapse. But I think the MRI initially in our study, we were using them because we were trying to make sure there wasn't a form of AVN and trying to use titanium screws and those things to avoid more artifact. But I think over time, I'm not sure that's as relevant because the x-rays can truly find the arthritic changes. We can see the collapse of the talus. So routinely, I don't personally get post-op CAT scans. I think the pre-op setting, it's uh, really important to do that just because you can assess and plan the, the surgery. But I, I, don't, I don't find a need personally to get them often post-operatively only because we can see those changes on x-ray. Gotcha. Um, you mentioned the use of titanium screws. Could you touch on the fixation used in this manuscript and how yours has either stayed the same or evolved in the last several years? Yeah, so so back in this day, obviously cannulated screws were the technique and the plates were kind of a thing of the future still. And now I know a lot of a lot, a lot of people that have published on this have gone to plate fixation in certain instances. I think I think it's very valuable in certain certain situations where there's a lot of common use and you're afraid of over compressing and ending with a varus angulation or a deformity. But I personally haven't used a lot of plates because I think they are a little bulkier and they have some other symptoms from those. So I personally have been able to stick with the screws. Um, we'll put in the, the side that's maybe 
not as common at first to avoid the overcompression in a position screw on the opposite side um, where the, the collapse may occur. So I haven't personally used much in the plating realm, but I know others haven't had success with it. So okay. I guess to answer your question, I, I still stuck with the same summer fixation type, but I know others have been successful with the plating. Gotcha. Um, we, we talked, we just tossed a, a touched upon fixation. Is there anything with this manuscript that after you and your colleagues, after it was accepted and published, is there anything you would look back and do differently to help add to the strength of the paper or to do differently? Um, yeah, I, I think in hindsight, we would have liked to add more patients, right? I mean, I think most studies would say that, but in this instance, you know, others have published with greater numbers. And I think we, we, we ended up with such a small number because we tried to turn into just the isolated displaced fractures. So we ended up knocking out a lot of cases because they had associated meal mouths, calc, some other thing that may cloud that true incidence of or, uh, AP, I mean, um, osteoarthritis. Yeah. So we tried to limit it. So. So in hindsight, we could have lengthened it a little bit, waited a little longer and pulled in more cases, which would have been nice. Um, another, another thing would have been possibly to uh, use a different outcomes measure. We use that, you know, the uh, ankle scoring system. Yep, the AOFAS. And we probably could have gone to the SF36. I think in hindsight, we commented on that in the paper. Yes, but that may have been a little more relevant outcome measure in, 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 according to our current standards. So. Gotcha. Um, is there, in, in terms of future research, do you think that there's a specific area that you would like to see answered in the literature regarding these injuries? Or a specific question, excuse me? Um, yeah, so, so I think, I guess to that question, um, in, in, a, in a bigger sense, I think gross anatomy is one of those things where once you kind of discover it, I don't think there's a lot of change that occurs with that, hopefully not. I know we're still evolving in some fashion, but I don't know how much of our anatomy is. But, but with that being said, I, I think the rest of the literature body, just because technology changes, techniques change, I, I think it's always relevant to continue publishing on items like this that may, in the end, do better with plates or some other thing that comes about at a later date. So to answer your question, I think there's always relevance to new studies, either to confirm what we thought before or to show different changes in the future. Okay. I think gross anatomy studies are one of those that may may not be as relevant to that, but yeah. Gotcha. And then when you when you have these injuries come in, what are things that you you know what are the top three things you tell you ask or make sure that your residents or trainees know in California regarding these injuries? So the displaced you know the displaced fractures you know the Hawkins two and threes we 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 go after those reductions in a closed fashion if they come in in the evening time or nighttime because or access gets tricky and things. So we'll try to do those in the morning, but I think a reduction is important. Although we say in here that maybe timing's not as critical. I think we could have added the fact that a reduction of that fracture would be beneficial. I, I can't believe leaving it unreduced would be of any benefit. So, and most of them will reduce reasonably, you know, sometimes the body will stay spun in the, in the joint, but I think a lot of times the neck will come in reasonable alignment and the subtail joint can reduce. So I think that's a beneficial move that we try to get done early and avoid just leaving it displaced overnight. Great. Um, well, I really appreciate your time and for joining us for a discussion of your article. And um, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. So I'm Chris Domes at University of Wisconsin. I'm joined here by Heather Valier. We're here to discuss her paper, A New Look at the Hawkins Classification for Taylor Neck Fractures which features of injury and treatment are predictive of osteonecrosis. So thank you so much, Heather, for joining me for this portion as well as the live portion. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for inviting me. So we'll start with our first question. What inspired you to take a closer look specifically at the Hawkins classification? Yeah, so for, for many years, um, things about the Hawkins classification have bothered me. And you know, Hawkins did a lot of work and developed this classification, which I think is very easy to remember, easy to use. Most orthopedic surgeons know what it is, and so it's it's uh, widely used, widely available. Yet, it really leaves something to be desired in terms of the Hawkins group two, that group that could either be subluxation or dislocation of the subtalar joint. And, and, and we can agree that whether it's completely dislocated versus just minimally displaced with no dislocation of any of the peritaylor joints, 
that's going to have different ramifications on the surrounding soft tissue and also potentially on the blood supply. And so for many years, I felt like it would be nice to look at that, yet these are such infrequent injuries, it's difficult to get a large series of them to actually look at it and decide, is there a way to modify the classification because there's probably a difference in prognosis from what we ended up calling a Hawkins 2B with a subtalar dislocation and a Hawkins 2A with no dislocation and just some dis displacement at the subtalar joint. And so, uh, you know, the you've read the paper and the paper shows a difference in osteonecrosis. In fact, there was no osteonecrosis in any of the Hawkins group one or group 2A injuries. So I think that that point um, has been made. Now, at the same time, there were some other things that we really wanted to look at in this sample of patients. And um, one of them had to do with the fact that much of the prior literature focuses on the timing of fixation. And we understand that the timing of definitive fixation doesn't appear to affect the rate of osteonecrosis. And nobody was really looking further back to say, well, what was the timing of the reduction events? The timing of the reduction events is really probably what matters because if it's dislocated and there's some tension on the blood supply, some pressure of one of the displaced fragments on the blood supply, then by reducing it, you should alleviate that pressure and potentially reduce the risk for osteonecrosis if the vessels are still intact. And so again, that's another thing that had not been studied. And so one of our goals was to look at that. And then I might say a third piece that has intrigued me and, and continues to is this idea around the presence of a medial malleolus fracture. And so a medial malleolus fracture would imply that the deltoid ligament is still intact and that any branches, be it the deltoid branch off the blood supply to the Taylor uh, body, would still be intact if those soft tissues were intact to the medial malleolus fracture fragment. Hence, having a medial malleolar fracture may portend a better prognosis in terms of a lower risk for osteonecrosis. Um, obviously those are even less frequent seen as you, you probably have to have a tibiotelar dislocation so meaning a Hawkins group three or a, a type four injury with a tibiotelar and a talonavicular dislocation in order to look at that and so the numbers get even smaller and more difficult to study but those were the things that we really wanted to look at in greater detail. So you hypothesize that delayed reduction affects osteonecrosis however we weren't really able to see that likely because of underpowering of the study. Do you think if you had more subjects to follow over a longer period of time, you would have seen that a delayed reduction affects the level, amount of osteonecrosis these patients see? Yes, I, I definitely do. Um, but as you stated, it, it's even more difficult now to get those patients because I think that as we get further along in time, people are more familiar with the importance of expediting reductions, not just of, of the talus, but also of other parts of the body. And so these patients with long periods of dislocation are becoming less and less uh, common. And so we didn't have enough in this study to show a difference in the timing of the reduction event in terms of osteoporosis risk. But it just makes sense that it should have an impact. So Heather, how has this paper changed your practice? I would say that this paper made me feel more comfortable with my practice. When I first started out, um, there were a few papers that had kind of suggested that the timing of fixation didn't matter, but there's still a lot of controversy, even amongst seasoned orthopedic trauma surgeons about um, waiting and really fixing these fractures um, on a delayed basis, allowing the soft tissues to recover and all that sort of thing. And, and well, I felt fairly convinced in my mind um, all of the people that I worked with in my first job uh, were not uh, of that mindset. And they had, throughout their careers, uh, looked at these, whether it's the middle of the night, weekend, and come in and expeditiously done those reductions and definitive fixation on an urgent basis because they believed that the risk of osteonecrosis was better. And they weren't alone. I think that's a fairly widespread practice. And so, while it frustrated me a little bit, and we continued to banter amongst ourselves, and 
I took a different path and we were able to get enough numbers, I think, in our group to convince each other like, hey, this is a better way to go. If we can get things reduced, let's wait for the soft tissues. Let's wait for the patient to be healthier, whatever it may be. And so I feel like there's a little more credence to that. And there's also a better consistency amongst the people I was working with in terms of how we were managing the, and, and that we can exchange those ideas uh, and, and do better. Um, a couple other things about my practice have shifted in that when I first started out, we didn't really have uh, a lot of implants. There were very few mini fragment type implants available. And so um, you're really stuck with a handful of say 2.7 uh, millimeter screws and small fragment implants, not many plates. And so now we have a variety of very small plates, uh, 2.4 uh, millimeter screws that are longer and uh, just a lot more versatility in implants. And I think that particularly with fracture comminution or with uh, smaller fragments, things involving the lateral process, we have uh, a lot better ability to strategically place implants that are gonna retain our fraction position better rather than maybe neglecting to stabilize smaller fragments with screws because we just didn't have anything to put in there and you're sort of stuck with leaving the cushion wire in and I'm not a huge fan of doing that. And so I think that the implant choices are vastly better and they continue to learn and try new things. Um, and I think that that's been uh, an improvement in my practice and in just the practice in general of, of fixing tailless fractures and other uh, periodic injuries. What are the main things that you want people to walk away after reading this paper? So I would say the, the primary thing that I hope they would take away is that it's appropriate to divide Hawkins group two into types A and B. And so type A being just a subluxation or minimal displacement at the subtalar joint versus B being a frank dislocation of the subtalar joint because there's a vastly different prognosis for osteonecrosis. In this series, there was no osteonecrosis with 2A versus a small percentage, which occurred only after 2B or more initial fracture displacement. So I think that's a key takeaway. I think the other pieces that if you if you read the whole paper are important to remember are that this paper in, reinforces that the timing of fixation has no effect on osteoporosis. Now that had been shown in a couple of other prior series, but I think it's further evidence to support that. And that the timing of reduction of the dislocations probably matters. It's discussed quite a bit, but we had a mean time reduction of just nine and a half hours. And so with that being so fast on average and the whole series uh, you know, just with several dozen patients, it really doesn't lend itself to the power uh, to do that. Um, I think that the fact that these were um, reduced and fixed almost all through anteromedial and anterolateral dual exposures, again, gives further, further credence to the importance of using a surgical tactic that will allow you ample visualization and ability to place strategic fixation through those windows. Um, I've met a lot of surgeons who are very apprehensive about doing the second incision because they feel like that's an osteonecrosis risk. And while this paper is not designed to study that, seen as like 95% of the patients were treated through dual exposures, um, I think it does support the fact that these osteonecrosis rates are actually pretty low compared to prior literature. And so if there were uh, a neatrogenic factor from just doing the two incisions, I think we would be able to see that or, or uh, hypothesize and speculate about it based on this series. Well, thank you so much for all your time and effort in, in helping us discover more about Taylor fractures. Uh, Dr. Valier, thank you so much for being part of this webinar series as well. We really appreciate all the work you've done and continue to do in helping us be better surgeons. All right. Um, so we're going to switch to the uh, panel discussion. So I'm going to start to share my screen again. Uh, bear with me. So, um, Chris, I'll let you take it away with the first question from the audience. Yep. And if you guys do have questions, please uh, write them in the question and answer uh, area, and we will present those or answer them through there. So one of the questions that did come up, and Dr. Valier, you just kind of briefly touched on this in, in our video is have there been associations with avascular necrosis depending on the approaches that are used? I know the paper that 
Valir, uh, Dr. Valir, you, you primarily looked at the anterolateral anteromedial, but do you guys know of any other approaches that people should frankly stay away from when addressing Taylor neck fractures? So that's a really interesting question. And I think this continues to come up and it's really a function of everybody's experience being different with a very rare injury. People learn from people who do you know, a handful of these and they pass on their pearls. And so there's these little pockets of, of practice and thought. And so that's a, that's a common concern. It was obviously mentioned just at the latter part of the video we just did. Um, with the two incisions, I think it's important to keep in mind that you should be using sharp dissection down to the level of the tail or neck, um, stripping the portions of the tail or neck that are in line with the medial or the lateral approach, depending on if you're in the anteromedial or lateral window, um, and avoiding dissection dorsally over the talus uh, because there may be some remaining uh, blood supply that's coming in there to make sure you're not damaging it. But probably even more importantly, that you're not uh, dissecting inferiorly. Um, in particular, we know the, the deltoid branch um, enters and is probably a main part of the blood supply that exists despite dislocation events. And so I think with careful surgical technique, the two incisions appear to be safe. That being said, there's really no direct study that looked at that and compared the two incisions versus just an anteromedial approach, which was kind of an older way of doing it, or just an anterolateral approach. Now, there's a, a large series of patients that was presented um, year before last at the OTA. I believe it was 22 centers presented by Max Alley um, with Paul Turnetta as his mentor out of uh, Boston University. And they had uh, close to 800 tailor neck and or body fractures. I think 610 of them were tailor neck fractures. And they um, did a lot of different analyses uh, looking at various injury features and surgical approach features and noted that the patients with dual anteromedial and anterolateral exposures did have a slightly higher risk of osteonecrosis. However, it's difficult to compare because it was very surgeon dependent. So I think that there may be an element of, of surgeon and center performance in terms of the nuances of the technique. And I, that's purely my opinion and speculations. I just don't think we have enough information to know. To your point about using some type of an alternative exposure, I'm not aware of another a tactical method to really give you the visualization to accurately reduce the fracture and to strategically place the impact plants. Many years back, people used to do it uh, posteriorly, which was really difficult to wrestle in the position. There was really no direct visualization available, and I would not advocate that. Uh, Dr. Githens, do you have any uh, additional commentary on your surgical approach planning? Um, any any pearls with respect to that with the, the question from the audience? Yeah, I don't think that I have a lot to add to that. I think that I very strongly agree with a, a meticulous dissection, um, being aware of where the perforating vessels reside. If that area is stripped, then you have to assume that those vessels are out and you may need access to the fracture for reduction there. But if it's not and you don't necessarily need access, then uh, I, I strongly agree with not it over dissecting uh, just just to develop a greater fracture uh, visualization plane. Um, and I think Dr. Miller mentioned this in her video, but I think where this becomes challenging and troublesome is when you've got a, a complex combined pattern where you've got, a, and this was, I think, uh, Dr. Tallarico, your question specifically, a tailor neck that's going to need dorsomedial, dorsolateral approaches, and then uh, postromedial approach for a posterior body fracture, which we don't see infrequently. And in those cases, the question is, you know, is it reasonable for me to make all three of those approaches? Um, and part of that decision-making process is what is the injury pattern? Dr. Belier has already talked to us about, you know, the the increasing risk with increasing joints dislocated. And in most of those cases, you've had, you have uh, two, if not, you know, subtalar and tibiotalar joint dislocations with the body spun and the posterior part comminuted. So you, you, I think your strategy may shift at that point in that your goal is restoring the morphology, uh, the, the osteology of the talus. And with, with the thought of this may go on to avascular necrosis, they may need additional operations. But if I can provide them with a normal shaped talus, 
that will provide the easiest salvage operation. And so part of this is a chess match and looking down the line and, and, and trying to decide um, where when do I need to make three approaches? Um, I will do them as safely as possible, but in my mind, I think reconstructing the the architecture of the Talus is very important when it comes to the downline salvage options. So I, I think that's where this conversation gets challenging in regards to the preserving blood supply, but with multiple approaches. Nice. Thank you both. Another question is, uh, as implants have changed and maybe we're not getting as many MRIs. Are people, or Dr. Valier, Dr. Githens, are you guys using primarily titanium or just normal stainless steel implants at this point? Also, are you guys primarily using cannulated type in instrumentation? What's, what's, your, what's your practice like now? I'll lead off on that one. I, I don't use titanium implants anticipating advanced imaging. I agree with Dr. Linval's points in that. And I guess I would even add to his points. There are a subset of injuries that I anticipate problems with in regards to AVM. Um, and of course, this is the whole purpose of Dr. Blear's paper is if you've got a, a 2A versus a 2B or a, a 3 or a 4, then that one I have a completely different post-operative approach to. And I'm not, in my practice and in my partner's practice, I don't really see a role for advanced imaging. So I'm not altering my implant strategy so that I can image down the line. I already know kind of what I'm looking for clinically, time course, and radiographically on plain radiographs. So that doesn't affect my implant strategy. Uh, and then in regards to cannulated versus not versus headless compression screws versus lagging by technique, um, in my opinion, a lot of that comes down to um, sort of the, the, the size of the hole that you're going to put in the tailor head, right? Like these are, and the, and the way you're generating compression and, and uh most of these fractures, if it's compressible, it's clampable. Uh, and I'm not sure that you're going to generate any greater compression with some uh, a, a headless compression type of screw, cannulated or not, as compared to lagging by technique. The size of the hole that you're going to put in the cartilage for countersinking or sinking that screw is about the same diameter. So in my practice, it's a standard cruciate head 2.4 millimeter screw. I like smaller diameter screws so that you can get multiple points of fixation and multi-fragmentary fixation without running into issues regarding uh, real estate for implant placement. Um, I do think that one of the nice things about using cannulated screws, if you, if you have a wire that's in the perfect spot and you want a screw there, it's pretty easy to put a screw right over that wire. But conversely, you can easily exchange that wire out for a small diameter screw. So in my practice, I'm using uh, standard inexpensive implants um, with your um, sort of classic AO techniques in order to obtain compression and fixation. I think my practice is fairly similar to Mike's practice. And so I don't have experience with planning for an MRI because I've always been of the philosophy that if the patient does develop osteonecrosis, I'm unlikely to obtain an MRI scan to diagnose that or to assess for treatment, we, we can recognize that I'm playing with radiography and in the absence of a Hawkins sign suggesting that the patient is going on to osteonecrosis, we encourage them to begin weight bearing. And so we don't alter the management other than to follow them closely to watch for collapse or other sequelae that may occur. And so I don't plan for MRIs and, and I don't use titanium implants. I feel like a lot of the titanium implants are sometimes more expensive and they're also um, they just have different properties when you're using them. And so I prefer uh, stainless steel, find it easier to work with, more readily available, um, easier to remove if you need to take it out. Um, and, and so I like that. Um, I don't have experience with cannulated screws in the talus. I use exclusively small fragment and mini fragment type implants. Um, in terms of screw size, um, I will use three, five screws sometimes as axial screws um, and or two, seven screws, sometimes a combination you know, one of one, one kind and two of the other kind. Uh, but I tend to countersink them through the head of the uh, tailor, tailor cartilage. 
Um, I like two four screws and two O screws with cruciform heads. And those are nice because you can set them right on down. And, and I, I've tried some of the headless compression screws, but I haven't been impressed with it. I just think that that's expensive and it's very fiddly and I don't think it, it really matters. Most of the time these fractures are comminuted and so you're not necessarily achieving compression um, through, your, through your screw placement. And in terms of the cannulated screw, they're, they're vastly more expensive, usually 15 to 20 times the price of a single non-cannulated screw. And it's really inferior in pullout strength because so much of the thread, um, the depth is compromised by the cannulated portion of the screw. And so it's been my preference in general to avoid using those um, aside for just very specific parts of the body. So to follow up on the, this discussion, if I may, I'd like to ask a question of the panel, um, sort of shifting the focus back to the injuries on the far end of the spectrum, the one where you've got a maybe a comminuted tailor neck, some peripheral associated fractures, and then the body is spun and dislocated. This is one where you are anticipating if anyone is going to develop uh, avascular necrosis over you know the six months to two-year period, it's this one. So in that patient, uh, aside from watching very, very closely and listening to the patient's symptoms, are any of you doing anything else in anticipation of that? And, and, and I'm, what I'm honing in on is, Dr. Valir, in your paper, you guys identify that there is quite a number of people who develop some degree of osteonecrosis, but not collapse. And so in that specific patient population, are you saying, I'm, I, I'm expecting some degree of AVN. What is in my armamentarium uh, to potentially prevent collapse a pancake talus that needs some complex salvage operation? Is it just a watch and wait, or is anybody doing anything else? Um, I'll go I first. I, I had one that I had a uh, young woman with a large posterior body fragment that also I, I did use all three approaches. And she, I've watched her for two years and I, it was mainly just observation and um, consultation with one of my phonical colleagues for workup of, she did develop osteonecrosis and she did have some collapse, but it was not, it was mainly just the tailored dome and not complete otherwise and otherwise maintained her alignment. So it's mainly just observation and waiting for her to elect if she chooses to have another procedure, but I've, I've mainly only been in practice for five years. Um, so for me, my short answer is observation and counseling over a, as long of a period of follow-up as I'm able to do with the patient. Yeah, I concur. Just to emphasize that point, you're going to see osteonecrosis, and when it when you first see it, you're usually not going to see any collapse or irregularities of the joint with it, and about half the time, um, it will revascularize. And so I think just educating the patient, counseling them to notify you if they're experiencing some change in their symptoms, um, but otherwise scheduling regular follow-ups approximately every two months to come in for, for plain radiography. Um, and then explaining that if there is some collapse, they may or may not be very symptomatic from it, and that there are pain relieving procedures that can be undertaken um, should they be indicated down the road. Um, although more often than not, uh, the patients in our, our practice really didn't um, end up getting salvage procedures either. Yeah, for me, it's really the same watching and, and very few of them have had to go on for secondary procedures at least, you know, five, five years in. Um, how about yourself, Dr. Githens? Is there anything that, that you have found to work or that you think might work on those patients? Yeah, I think this, you know, this is kind of the, the challenging window of managing these patients who have the worst injury. And I think it's interesting. And I think it's an area for further exploration um, because I don't, I don't know that just purely observation and early purely observation and early detection is super important. And when somebody starts to develop it, you got to say, Hey, this is what's happening. Got to keep a very close eye on you and here are the next steps. But I think that there may be more, that we can offer, or at least sort of avenues that can be studied. Um, and one thing that we've been doing is starting to put these patients into the dynamic um, custom fit hind foot offloading orthosis, uh, an orthosis that will take uh, the load and transmit it from the midfoot to the tibia and offload the hind foot and the tibio tailor joint. 
and this is anecdotal, right? There is there is no good evidence to support this, and these braces are expensive, but I do think it's a future area for study. Because if you think about what happens with these patients, it's they're doing really well. They're making incremental improvements. They're doing well. They're getting back to their activities. You're following them closely. And then all of a sudden, they have sort of this precipitous decline, and, and they come in with a pancake flat talus. And so what we've been doing is in this subset of patients where you say, hey, look, like more likely than not, based upon your injury, this is going to happen. So as a preventative strategy, we've started putting patients in those braces. I can't say because we haven't studied it, but anecdotally, it seems like they're comfortable, they help the patients, and perhaps when the talus is revascularizing during that process, it may prevent collapse. Again, not uh, not advocating this uh, uh, to all of the listeners is something that we're recommending as a carte blanche treatment, but I think it's something to consider. You know, I know folks who have actually, once once you see early evidence and symptoms related to avascular necrosis, actually put a distraction frame on, um, which seems very aggressive to me. Um, but you're also talking about saving the patient, potentially saving the patient's talus. So the only reason that I bring that up is because we talk about the mainstay is early detection, symptomatic management, and then salvage procedures. But there may, in my opinion, may be a window where we could intervene um, and prevent that collapse. So I appreciate your guys' comments. This is All really right. interesting. Can I can I ask you a question about that? Yeah. So I heard about using um, external fixation distraction, and I just kind of anecdotally, you know, a couple of people have like one one or two cases, and so it's it's fascinating to me. But I'm wondering a couple of things. When you apply that orthosis, are you noticing disuse osteopenia in other parts of the foot and ankle just because they're not loading the joints the same way? And then also, is there some concomitant um, diminution in muscle strength and flexibility, again, from more protracted disuse than if they were to restore as a normal as an ambulation as they can? And then I guess my second question is, is if they're gonna collapse, do you really think it's going to prevent them from collapse? I mean, you're going under the theory that while they're a little bit more protected, they're going to have more time to revascularize. And if so, then how long do you continue with that orthosis? Yeah. So to answer your, uh, your first question, um, I think that the patients, you know, we, at least the ones where we've really are working close with can follow up, we can follow their physical therapy. This is a brace that's worn when they're weight bearing. And we're really working on subtalar motion, ankle range of motion at the same time with the brace off, right? So unloaded motion exercises. Um, and, and so you do see disuse osteopenia for sure. Um, in those patients who are wearing them over, you know, multiple, multiple months. Um, in regards to the motion and the atrophy associated with that, really hard to measure and hard to know. Um, but again, I think the patients that we do get into these braces are the folks who really are invested in their own, uh, own care. Um, and so they're working hard in physical therapy as well. Um, to answer your second question in regards to the duration of bracing and do I really think that it may provide a, a window where you can revascularize in the absence of significant loading and perhaps uh, avoid collapse. I think so. I, I'd like to think so. Um, but in regards to the duration that it takes, I don't know the answer. I, I have absolutely no idea. But what I found is the braces, because they're custom fit inside shoe, underneath clothing, clothing patients tolerate them really well. I've had very few patients say, can't stand it. I'm not going to wear it. And many patients who say, yeah, when I'm up and about, actually, I, I feel better. And it becomes a, sort of a um, an accepted part of, you know, you tell them you've got a terrible injury and there's going to be all kinds of potential necessary interventions along the way. And when they get this low profile custom molded brace, it seems like not such a bad intervention on that spectrum that you've spoken with them about. Um, so hopefully that answers your questions. Yeah. Thank you. That's very interesting. I've I've had some good success with putting patients in those. The biggest issue in in our region and in what people 
hit against is just getting them and the access to somebody who can accurately and and in a good fashion make those um, for our patients. That's been really hard uh, coming from uh, from your region, Dr. Githens. We don't have quite the availability, but they, I think, help out uh, symptomatically. One uh, question that came up was, what, what is, uh, Dr. Valier, Dr. Githens, your post-operative protocol for these that you do to incision, plate, screws, uh, uh, fix? I'm, I'm pretty basic. So I, I splint in the OR, uh, encourage rest and elevation of the leg a lot those first few weeks, try to get the, the fluid out of the tissue. Um, and then at the first post-operative visit, approximately two and a half weeks post-op, uh, as long as the wounds look okay, we'll do suture removal and start range of motion activities. Um, if I have a completely unreliable patient, you know, somebody who's a recreational drug user and or a super comminuted tail or body fracture, I might use a short leg cast for six weeks or so just to kind of protect them a little bit from themselves. Um, and then normally they're moving uh, and, and getting going in around uh, 12 weeks. If it looks like the fractures are healed or nearly completely healed, I just have them do progressive weight bearing tolerated. Dr. Githens, any difference? Uh, very similar post-op protocol. You know, there's the occasional one that uh, has associated sort of circumferential soft tissue injury, not skin, but ligamentous disruptions and such that you need to keep in an external fixator or or fixation that you're concerned about that you need to uh, keep in an external fixator. And I would say, and, and so those patients, I would say that's an imp important thing to sort of identify preoperatively is say, hey, there is there are features of this injury where I'm really worried that even if after plate and screw fixation, I'm going to have some potential issue. Whereas if I, if I leave this as it is either a gross instability or the motion, just physiologic motion may induce shear in a way that I can't trust my fixation. Um, then I will tell that person preoperatively, we're going to, we're going to fix this on the inside and then we're going to create a scaffolding on the outside to protect it. That's rare. Um, and I'd say generally speaking, my post-operative protocol is very similar to, to Dr. Valier's. I think that early motion in the absence of shear forces, so non-weight bearing for three months, but early subtalar ankle joint and uh, midfoot motion are very important in regards to that sort of optimizing function. There's been uh, two additional questions, one of which kind of jumps off of the discussion of post-operative protocol embracing and in general when you if you are justifying the use of certain special braces or custom braces are there specific wording that you use for the orders um dr githens dr uh, valier about for insurance companies and workman's compensation that needs to be in there for them to be approved for things yeah, that that's, you see that's a really interesting sort of point in this discussion and i'm glad that was brought up and it sort of it ties into the evolution, I think, at least in our institutional experience with these braces. Um, and just going back to Dr. Dome's point where accessibility can be a real challenge. We, we I would say five or six years ago, we were faced with a similar problem. And at that time, there was only one manufacturer of these sort of braces that we could send our patients to in a reliable way. But in order to get the insurance to cover it, the documentation had to say, this is the last option viable prior to an amputation. And of course, that becomes a big issue because then the patient reads their chart and they're like, whoa, we didn't talk about amputation. Um, and, but so, so I think that there are probably in certain regions, you're going to have to push your insurance company that hard. And the question is, well, is it really worth pushing the insurance company that hard when really that is perhaps a, the, the worst of the worst potential outcome, but unlikely that that's the case. So I would tell you that five years ago, that was part of the dot phrase in regards to justifying the use of some of these braces. Um, but what that did was sort of force a more widespread coverage of these things. And um, now we don't really have to justify it other than saying I'm expecting, uh, and I, th I think a reasonable thing to say is I'm expecting uh, avascular necrosis resulting in collapse of the talus, which necessitates further surgical intervention. And this device may prevent that. And then it's up to the, 
the, to provide or in regards to how hard to push sort of whatever the specialty devices that you're looking for. But yeah, that's a, it's a challenge. Um, as part of that, before I get to the second question that was asked is, is there a window, you know, we talked about, we asked you about your post-operative protocols. Is there a window where you think that this off potential offloading use of brace or distraction external fixator, is there a time window that where you've seen the, this in your patient's follow-up here where you feel like this might be useful or to, where you start to see the earlier signs of osteonecrosis? Is that something you can inform the audience about your practices? Yeah. So the, so the, the bracing, I, I would say that I would put more eggs in the bracing basket than I would this distraction external fixation. I think that distraction external fixation is reserved for very specific patients uh, in very specific settings. But in regards to the bracing, if you say, hey, I've got this subset of patients where I know this is a terrible injury and more likely than not, they're going to suffer this sequela. I, I tend to try to get them fitted for the brace once the swelling has come down. So at their six-week appointment, if their wounds have healed and they look like they're starting to develop normal contours about the ankle, then that's time to send them to get fitted because that process takes a couple of weeks at, at, at best. And then they'll have the brace by the time they hit the three-month mark. They can start to ease into it. No patient is going to hit the ground running it, or most patients are not going to hit the ground running at three months. So you have the opportunity to ease into it for a couple of months. And then by the time you hit the six month period, you're really entering that window where you may be the patient who's going to suffer from early collapse. So I like to initiate the fitting before they're weight bearing, get them used to the brace as they start getting used to weight bearing. And then they're going to, they're either going to like it. And at least again, in my anecdotal experience, they're going to like it and they're going to wear it when they're up and about and they'll wear it for a couple of years until they say, Hey, I'm kind of back to my baseline. And I don't think I need this thing anymore. Mm -hmm. And I have to be, to be very honest. I've had a few patients who have worn the brace and still have pancake flat tailless. It's not, doesn't, you know, prevent it every time. But that's part of the reason why the brace was developed for severe, you know, arthritic conditions, yeah. all kinds of things. So that, that kind of makes sense. It's very interesting. Totally. And I mean, if you think about that, right, this is like to save the folks who have the worst of the worst articular hind foot injuries. And it's really designed to treat post-traumatic arthritis. And so what you're doing is you're all right, you're, you're treating that, you're managing that symptom, but it, perhaps you're also preventing some collapse. Thank you both. Um, that's, a, that's a very interesting thing that has been part of this discussion live, which I wasn't anticipating, which is great. Um, just to hammer home a point more about the surgical treatment is what are there certain characteristics that you're overnight when something isn't able to be reduced? Can you talk about just to reiterate the points about timing to reduction and timing for surgery on um, when you would take these overnight that are not reducible? Oh, I, so that's a great question. So most of the time, um, your Hawkins group three and type four injuries, you're probably not gonna be able to get them reduced in ED. Sometimes you can get the two V1s reduced depending on the injury and the amount of relaxation. And so those dislocations should be reduced and then splinted. Most of the time, I don't think you need an external fixer if you just splint it and have it be relatively uh, congruous, but sometimes you can get them to the OR and just some general anesthesia will allow you to get it back in through closed means or through percutaneous manipulation, for example, a transfiction pin in the calcaneus, something that'll just give you a little bit more uh, directed force to the peritellar joints to get it reduced. Um, if all of those things fail for me, and again, I, I don't leave them dislocated all night, like say the patient came in at 6 or 7 p.m., that would go to the OR then and get a reduction. If it came in at like 8 or 9 p.m., you know, depending, was I still around and, you know, is there a room open, we'd probably just get it reduced. Once it gets past then, then probably it would go first case in the morning or maybe an hour before the trauma room starts. You know, it's, it's, I think that's a little bit of a judgment call because there's like kind of a, a little bit of a dead zone there in the middle of the night where I might wait a little while, depending on the patient, the amount of time that it's been dislocated and the status of the soft tissues. If you can't get it reduced, closed or percutaneous manipulation in the OR, then you should do an open reduction. If it's a simple fracture and the soft tissues appear amenable, I may just reduce it and fix the whole thing then. 
Um, but if it looks a little more complicated, I may just make an intermedial exposure to facilitate reduction, get it reduced, and then uh, close the wounds, splint, and come back in a couple of weeks and do the rest of the surgery. Now, occasionally I've had patients who have um, like very severe head injuries or a variety of other systemic things going on, and it's not feasible to sit in the OR with them for a couple of hours, which it's going to take to accurately reduce and fix this. But you can do some percutaneous manipulation or maybe just a quick open reduction. And so, again, that's preferable than leaving it sitting dislocated for many hours or even days. Thank you. With the, in your, both of your, um, clinical experiences, have there been common things that why the fractures have been non-reducible, um, character, fracture characteristics that you see on initial presentation or CT imaging that make you think this isn't going to be successful for a closed reduction? Yeah, I think so for sure. Uh, some of these injuries are wild. Like, yeah, I'd say that it's easy to sort of classify these as a 2B, 3, 4, but when you have body involvement, they can dislocate in any direction. And I think sort of, you know, going back to the sort of the most common sort of structures to prevent a reduction, it's like anything. And so really what I found is that if this is something that is not closed reducible with good sedation, if not paralysis, there's more likely than not something really blocking that reduction and, 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 and getting a CT scan and really studying the dislocated fragment in relationship to the tendons on the medial side, um, the musculature on the lateral side, there it is very helpful because then that can help you as Dr. Valier pointed out, it's like, you may not have the opportunity to make multiple incisions and fix this thing. You may have the opportunity to spend one hour with this. And if you just put a, let's say the medial tendons are the problem and they're draped over the neck or the body, and you put a distractor on that, all that's going to do is tension the tendon. And it's going to make it even harder to get the thing reduced. So if you take the time to study that CT scan, look at the soft tissue windows, and then just go back to your anatomy book and say, all right, well, if this thing is flipped out posteromedially and I see a couple of things over the top and one over the bottom, then to me, there that's where I need to make my incision in order to just simply flip those things out of the way and then it's going to pop back in. You can pull all you want, but until you have identified the specific structure um, and address that, I think it can be very hard. So I would just push the audience towards really paying attention to that CT scan and understanding the dislocated fragment and its relationship to whatever soft tissue structures there are. I mean, if, if the, if the body is the body and, or the head, I mean, sometimes you have these weird shearing injuries where most of the talus is dislocated medially, you know, that it's going to be some of the medial structures that are in the way, but then when you go to reduce it, you flip the medial structures off of it and it still won't go. And it's because your buttonhole through the tail, tail and avicular capsule too. So it's, um, it's, I, I can't say that, you know, commonly it's this or that it's just really understanding the specific, fragmentation and dislocation patterns and, and paying attention to the soft tissue structures that are adjacent. Yeah, I think Mike is, is speaking from a lot of really good experience and giving you some, some nice pearls uh, for these cases, which are more often than not very challenging and frustrating. Um, I think there's a tendency when you get in there and most of the time the body uh, is going to be dislocated post-remedially, sometimes other places, but um, particularly if there's not a medial malleolus fracture, it's really tight uh, back there. So, you know, you can try to give it a good pull, give it a percutaneous manipulation, open it, do the same thing. But having everybody in the room cranking on it, you know, and suddenly you're into this tug of war and like, we're going to get this thing back in. And you realize like, okay, time out. Like, this thing's beating us right now. So we have to be smarter than it. Just stop and look at your tissues and kind of look at the tension of it and sort of see where, where things are at. And if you can do that and maybe floor it a little bit and play with it, you might just by taking some pause to study, reflect, look at the imaging, ascertain some things that are hanging you up and, and simplify the process. A couple of, of things that I've gone to 
quite frankly, out of initial desperation many years ago, and then now I use them more routinely, are do a percutaneous uh, Achilles lengthening. That'll give you just a little bit more um, slack in your tissues. And you can also um, do a capsulotomy posteriorly. I used to do it um, under C-arm, but now I just will kind of do it through the intermedial uh, view and you can sort of feel it with your finger. You can take like a, a number 15 blade and just feel the capsule and kind of cut the capsule in the back. And that's wonderful because it'll kind of just, you can feel the release and how much easier it is. It's still difficult, but you can really get control of the body then to get it back in. The other thing that works nice is taking a um, little 2.5 chance pin or a 3040 chance pin and, and threading it right into the fractured edge of the tailor body in like a corkscrew. And then you can kind of grab it and, and pull it back in. And sometimes in conjunction with your thumb at the back and then pulling from the front, that's just a little bit more mechanical advantage um, to, to try to get around it because it's, it's a slippery little bugger when it's uh, stuck back there. And, and so those are a few things that might, might help you out when you're wrestling it in the morning. Well, awesome. This has been an excellent discussion. Um, and if the uh, faculty are okay, I, we can go to our closing statements, let everybody get on with their evening. Um, but I love that we talked a lot about um, pain, patient counseling, soft tissue handling was a huge part of it. And just even in the overnight reduction tips or irreducible. And that's what I was asked the leading question with the common things. But as Dr. Githens pointed out, it's not always just common. It's uh, pointing out all the soft tissue structures and it may be an understanding the fracture. Um, so the take-home messages for today, hopefully with the videos and the panel discussion is to apply the knowledge of the vascularity and adjacent soft tissue structures for planning the surgical approach and fixation, recognizing these specific injury characteristics that affect uh, sequelae and outcomes, and then understanding the severity of these injuries with patient counseling for the development of post-traumatic arthritis and osteonecrosis. Um, and I think that those three videos and papers highlight those all well, and we discussed those a lot in the, in the panel discussion. So thank you so much to everybody. And then the last uh, is a plug for the upcoming journal clubs. Please look for these in your emails. In August, we have pelvic ring resuscitation, and then September uh, infection, followed by October clavicle operative treatment. And you can always use the My AO app to make the most of your AO experience. Thank you so much, everybody. I really appreciate it.